Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 49 this morning. Psalm 49. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one right in front of you that you're welcome to use and welcome to keep. If you don't have a Bible or just don't have a translation that makes sense to you, we would love to just you to walk out the door with that Bible today. You don't got to tell us. You don't got to sign a list. Just take it home. All we ask is that you read it. So this morning we're looking at Psalm 49 as we continue our, our series this summer in the book of Psalms. We're just working our way straight through them. So it's not a greatest hits, picking out our favorites. We're doing all the hits as well as the deep cuts. So that only makes sense to some of you, but that means we're not skipping anyone's. We're going through all of them. And as you're turning there, I just want to mention, I, I loved how Brian prayed for us this morning. And if some of those things you heard kind of just resonated in your heart, particular challenges or thoughts about work, just a reminder that we just recently started our core class on that topic. So I think we're only two weeks in already, so there's still lots more to go. So if you're at all intrigued by some of what you heard in that prayer, I'd really encourage you to check out the class, 9 o'clock in the fellowship hall. It's called The Gospel at Work, and it's about that. What is work? Is it good? Is it bad? Why? How does Jesus change our work? How should we think about work as Christians? Um, lots of good stuff. So if you have questions, talk to me, but I, that is your personal invitation. Consider yourself invited. Now we will look at Psalm 49, and as we do so, let me invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Hear this, all peoples, Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, 
And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I want to introduce you to one of my favorite phrases from history. And yes, you're probably thinking, first of all, that's weird and kind of nerdy that you have favorite phrases from history, but I do, and this is one of them. The phrase is memento mori, and it's Latin for remember death. Now, it's believed that this phrase comes from an ancient Roman tradition where when a victorious Roman general would be paraded through town after his conquest, a servant would be given the job of standing with him in the chariot a little bit behind him. And as the general basked in the glory of the cheering crowds and the greatness of his conquering power and accomplishments, this servant would have one job and one job only. The servant would be to whisper continually in the ear of the general, Respice post te hominem te esse memento. Memento mori, which means look behind you. Remember that you are but a man. Remember death. So in the midst of all this glory, in the midst of all this success, I mean, picture ticker tape parades down whatever that big city is or that street in New York City when the Yankees win the World Series. People are cheering. There's floats. There's celebration. And everyone is lauding them for all they've done. Imagine that there's somebody on the float next to them reminding them constantly, Remember death. Remember death. Now, why would these generals want that? Why would these generals need that? Because they needed to be reminded of how fleeting this glory really is. And they wanted to remember that death would come for them as well. Now, while in today's culture, we might find a story like that or an expression like this, we might find it kind of depressing. We might say, man, that's pretty morbid. For much of Christian history, this phrase and this idea of remembering death has been embraced as a motivation to live a good and meaningful life. In fact, a whole art form actually grew out of this idea called memento mori. And at the time, painters and sculptors would create works featuring skulls and skeletons and other icons of death not as a way of, of celebrating darkness, but as a way to help them remember death. And the churches, far from being opposed to this, churches would actually display these works in their buildings. Why would they do that? Because they wanted the people to often be provoked to think about death, to reflect upon their lives, and to make sure that they were prepared to meet God. Furthermore, for much of church history, to enter a church building often required you to at least pass by and often pass through a cemetery. And that wasn't just an inconvenience due to space constraints. That was by design. Why? Memento mori. To help you remember death. Now this concept of preparing to die was so important 
that in the 1700s here in America, one of the most popular educational resources of the day was something called the New England Primer. This was found in most, if not all, little schools across the area. And one thing that this primer did was teach children their letters. And it did that by matching each letter of the alphabet with a short rhyme, usually with a biblical theme, and then a little picture that matched with that rhyme. So it would help them learn about these letters. So you can imagine L had something about the lion and the lamb, Z had Zacchaeus, and so on. Well, among these rhymes was one for the letter T. The picture for T was of a skeleton holding an hourglass in one hand and a reaper's scythe in the other. And this was the rhyme that accompanied it. Time cuts down all, both great and small. So just think about this. This is early, what, kindergarten maybe? First grade? They're teaching children to read by reminding them we're all going to die. Now in today's culture, this idea of memento mori is very out of step. You probably even sense it a little bit right now. There there may be a slight discomfort in the air. Why? Because we don't talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We do everything we can to distance ourselves from it, to sanitize it, and to try to ignore it the best that we can. The idea of memento mori is missing in our day, and I would contend that we are the worse off for it. Not remembering our mortality leads to both a fear of death and wasted lives. Because part of living well involves remembering that one day life will end. And then living in light of that reality. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. In other words, he says, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. We say, no, I don't think so. He says, yes, it is. Why? Because there's wisdom to be gained by remembering that the end of all mankind is to die. In other words, what he's saying is we should memento mori. This morning in Psalm 49... It's going to be all about this idea. It's about the wisdom to be gained in life by remembering death. In particular, this psalm is going to grapple with a problem and a question that probably many of us have asked at some point. The question can be phrased differently, but it's something like this. What are we to make of the fact that so many people who reject God seem to live such good lives? What are we... What do we do with the fact that as followers of Jesus, we can be tempted to be afraid when the rich and powerful of our day are almost all godless people who stand opposed to the gospel? How do we make sense of life when the wicked prosper and the righteous barely get by? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? I mean, we all heard it here it said, you only live once, right? So are we missing out on something? Psalm 49 is going to tackle these big questions head on. And we're going to look at the answer it gives in three main points this morning. 
So you want to go ahead and throw that up. I'm giving you a couple subpoints here just to give you a roadmap up front. Our three main sections are in verses 1 to 4. We're going to hear that this is a, a song about wise words. The idea in verses 5 to 12 is worthless wealth. And the focus in 13 to 20 is when it's all over. Now, when we look at worthless wealth, there's going to be two main ideas, and that is wealth can't save you, and you can't take it with you. Then when we look at when it's all over, we're going to see two sections, the great divide and the great illusion. Okay, so that's where we're going. And right before we jump in, though, I want to make sure that as we get going, that we're approaching this psalm the right way. I want you to hear this, and I want this to be constantly going through your mind. Yes, this psalm is all about death. But the wisdom here about death is to help us live. And we need to keep remembering that, that we're not just talking about death as an end in itself. What is it about death that we learn that should change the way I live today? Okay, so keep that in your mind. Let's start at the beginning to glean the wisdom God has for us in this psalm. Look back at verse 1 with me. He starts off and he announces, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. So here the psalmist starts with a call to listen up. Pay attention, he says. He wants us to lean in and listen closely because what he's about to say is a matter of utmost importance. The picture here is like, when you're, we've got the TV on in the background, maybe you're at like a big family gathering and, and everybody's talking, the kids are playing, the dog's barking, there's just lots of commotion, but the TV's on in the background. But then one of the family members is watching it and realizes that the special news bulletin has come on and something massively important has happened. And so into the midst of that noise, suddenly that family member is saying, hey, hey, everybody, quiet down, quiet down. They're trying to tell us something really important. That's what verses 1 and 2 are doing. It's saying, listen, listen, quiet down. Turn off all the other noises and voices in your life, and you need to listen to this. You don't want to miss what I'm about to tell you. And this message, notice he says, is for everybody. So if you're here wondering, if you came this morning thinking, I wonder how much the sermon is going to apply to me today. It applies to you. If you're a person, it applies to you. It says all peoples, all inhabitants of the world. So if we think about those criteria, if you are a person and you are living in this world, this message is for you. Whatever category you belong to, low, high, rich, poor, old, young, man, woman, white, black, Latino, Asian, Democrat, Republican, whatever category you want to make, he's saying it applies to you, what I'm about to say. Then in verses 3 to 4, he tells us a little bit about what type of message he's about to give to all of us. He says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. In other words, he says, he's about to drop some wisdom on us. This message that's coming out of his heart is going to be one of profound understanding. These are wise words that he's about to share. 
Not only that, these wise words, he says, will solve a riddle. They're going to solve a riddle that perplexes all of us. This wisdom that he's about to give us will unlock a question that we all need to have answered. One of life's confusing mysteries. Then, after he's got our attention, after he's told us that he has these wise words for every single person and they all need to pay attention, he's told us, hey, these wise words are going to clear up a riddle. In verse 5, we get a glimpse of what this riddle is about. Look at verse 5. He says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? So let's stop there. So the problem that he sees here is that he looks around and he realizes that he's living in a time of great immorality and wrongdoing. This is, he just looks around and he sees rampant sin and wickedness. And he's surrounded, in particular, by the sin and wicked behavior of people who are causing trouble for the vulnerable. And these wicked people, what's so perplexing and confounding about it all, is that he looks at these people and these rich, wicked people seem to be untouchable. They seem to be almost invincible because of their wealth. And when it talks about wealth in a psalm, it is definitely talking about money, but it's not only talking about money. It's talking about power and influence, about connections and clout, all the things that come with having money. And he looks at these people and he says, they get whatever they want. They do whatever they want. And when the people who have money, power, and influence are the ones who trust in their riches and not in God, that can be a frightening situation for followers of God, can't it? For those who find themselves on the opposite side as the opponents of the real movers and shakers in society. In that situation, it's easy to feel worried when those whose agenda is against God's seems like they are the ones that have all the money and all the power. Not only that, there's also this fear that, like I said earlier, maybe we're missing out. I mean, after all, what if I never get to have what they have? What if I go through life and I never live in the kind of homes they live in? What if I never get to drive the kind of cars they drive? What if I don't get to travel like they do? What if being faithful to God means I miss out on riches in this life? Is it worth that? As you are well aware, these are real fears. And the psalmist tackles them head on. First of all, just a side note. Aren't you glad the Bible knows our hearts? The Bible the Bible's not some surface level, sanitized view of humanity. It says, I know what you think. I know when no one else is listening in and when you're in the quiet of your bedroom and you're just daydreaming. I know the thoughts that go through your heart and I'm not going to leave them unaddressed. Instead, because I love you, I'm going to speak right into your deepest questions. And that's what he does here. And he tackles them head on, but he does it by asking a question rather than making a statement, which I think is really helpful sometimes. Sometimes what we need to do with our fears is to ask our fears questions. Rather than simply telling yourself what's true, take whatever that thing is you're afraid of. Here, he says, why should I fear? And so he's, he asks his fear a question. 
Why should I fear just because the wicked who trust in their wealth have so much wealth to trust in? Why should that scare me, he says? Or why should that make me jealous? And his answer is it shouldn't. And what he's going to do in this section is tell us why not. So his main point in verses 7 to 12 is we don't need to be afraid because in the big picture, all that money and power and influence is just worthless wealth. And he's going to show us the two main reasons why that's true. First, in verses 7 to 9, he's going to tell us wealth can't save you. And then in 10 to 12, he'll tell us you can't take it with you. So first, wealth can't save you. Look at verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. His point in this is really simple, really direct, and really important. And that is, there is no amount of money that can save us from the problem of death. Death is one problem we all have in common. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your interests, whatever your health, your age, all of us face the reality of death. It's coming for us all, and no one is able to rescue themselves. No one has enough money to ransom themselves, it says, from death and from the punishment that awaits. The reason we all die, the Bible tells us, is because we all sin. And because we all sin, Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This judgment is the penalty that we all deserve for our sin. Friends, like I said, most of us don't like to think about it, but the reality is all of us will have a funeral. You will have a funeral. And after your funeral, all of us will stand before God to answer for the life we've lived. And no matter how much money you have, no one, not even the wealthiest people in the world, no one has enough money to buy their way out of this problem. There is nothing you can offer to God that's valuable enough to pay your ransom or anyone else's. Jesus warned us that we cannot serve two masters. We will either serve God or money, but not both. And then he asked the all-important question. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? In other words, we can have everything money can buy, but it will never be enough to ransom our soul. So even though wealth might be able to do a lot of things for you in this life, and it can, it cannot do the most important thing. It cannot save you from death and judgment. That's one reason the psalm gives us why wealth is ultimately worthless. To see the second reason, look with me at verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations though they called lands by their own names. 
So his point here is again that we all face the same problem at death. Doesn't matter if you're wise or you're foolish. Both of them will die and they will leave whatever they had behind. You don't get to take any of it with you. Perhaps you've heard the story about two men discussing the recent death of an incredibly rich businessman in their town. Word had gotten out that this guy had died and so these two are on the street talking and the one man, he's, he's really eager to know just how wealthy that businessman was. So he turns and he asks his friend, so, so I've got to know, how much exactly did he leave behind? To which his friend gives him a surprised look and says, why, all of it, of course. Think about it for a moment, it'll come to you. The point is that You can't take anything with you. There are no trailer hitches on hearses to hook your U-Haul to. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. And we all know that. We've all heard the sayings. We nod our heads in agreement. And yet, why do we spend so much of our lives trying to get a little more? Why are so many of our decisions based on what will help us save a little more money, make a little more money, or have a little nicer thing that money can buy? The psalm reminds us that no matter how much we get, one day we will suddenly have to leave it all behind. It's like a homeless man playing a game of Monopoly. As long as the game lasts, he might acquire lots of properties. He might have tons of money. He might win the game. But as soon as the game's over, all that he had goes back in the box for the next players. And he walks away still with nothing. For those who trust in their wealth, death is like a robber taking everything of value to you. But for those who trust in Christ, death is like a butler, taking nothing but our coat of sin and suffering and sorrow, taking it from us and ushering us into our inheritance, the mansion of God's mercy and the palace of his presence. I love how Tim Keller put this. He said, only God can give you things of value that death cannot touch, but only enhance. Friends, it's not wrong to want to be rich. But we are to long to be rich toward God. We are to lay up treasure in heaven. And there's no budgeting No rationing, no limit. It doesn't say lay up just enough to get by. It says lay up treasure in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal, where not even death can take what you have. As Randy Alcorn famously says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. But in verse 10, the psalmist reminds us that all earthly wealth is left behind. 
In verse 11, he points out that even though these people might have owned several extravagant houses in life, when they die, it's their graves that are their home forever. What he's saying is that even if you were a real estate tycoon with more properties than you could even remember, the only plot of land that will belong to you after you die is your burial plot. And notice the last line of verse 11. Though they called lands by their own names. These are the people who have spent their lives, their energy, their time trying to make sure their names live on long after they're dead. They want to be remembered and so they use their money and their influence to have things named after them. To try to build a legacy in the hopes that somehow if their name lives on that will allow them to cheat death in some sense. And yet in verse 12 we come to the chorus of this song. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Now if you look ahead we see almost the same exact line at the end of the psalm in verse 20. In verse 12 and verse 20, this is like a chorus marking the end of the two sections of the psalm. And here in verse 12, the summary point of this first section is simple. No matter how wealthy man is, he dies just as surely as the animals. And that word pomp, and it's not a word we use a lot other than pomp and circumstance, but the word pomp, it just means grandeur honor, exorbitance. So it means no matter how powerful and rich and lavish someone's life may be, they're still going to die. And because of that, in the big picture, all this pomp is really just worthless wealth. Then, after this chorus, we come to the last big section of the psalm. Here the focus is on when it's all over. How does the reality of what happens at the end of life help clarify what really matters in life? And we see that question worked out in those two subpoints. I borrowed these titles from, from the commentator Derek Kidner because I thought they were so helpful. In verses 13 to 15, you see a great divide, and in 16 to 20, the great illusion. So let's look first at the great divide in verse 13. It says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So there's going to be two groups of people here in verses 13 to 15. And we're going to see they face massively and eternally different futures. First, we see the people who have foolish confidence in their wealth. These are the ones who trust in their riches and their power. They trust in them to give them security, to give them happiness, to give them meaning. Not only that, it says people praise them for the way they live. They approve of their boast. These people like to talk about what they've got and how the influence they can exert because of what they've got. And other people look at them and say, yeah, man, that's awesome. Like, I, I want to be like them. These people are influential. They have tons of money and tons of followers. And yet, what's their future hold? Like sheep, they are appointed for the grave. 
These people are like dumb sheep simply being herded toward hell. Death is personified here as a shepherd, leading them ever onward toward this fate. And just like a shepherd controls the sheep, so all aspects of death will control these people. It says their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. And do you see the great reversal at work there? These wealthy wicked who lavishly consumed all that this life had to offer will now themselves be consumed. Those who had many and grand houses now are homeless forever. Not only that, we also see that while those who are foolishly confident in their riches had power over those who trust God during life, once again the roles are reversed. And it says the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Now why does it say in the morning? Because it's talking about when the night of this life is over and the new day of eternity dawns. When we awake on that morning, those who trust in Christ will then rule over the wicked who now rule over us. The point in verses 13 to 14 is that death should be a terrifying reality. As we saw earlier, after death comes judgment and we will all face God and he will demand payment for our sin. He will demand a ransom and none of us can afford it. And if we can't pay it, we face an eternal punishment. So if you're here this morning and the thought of death scares you, it should. In fact, it should terrify you far more than it does. Unless. Unless there was some other way for our ransom to be paid. And praise God, that's exactly what we see in verse 15. Look there. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Friends, this is the greatest news you will ever hear. We can't save ourselves, but God himself will save us. We can't pay our ransom, but God will pay it on our behalf. We face death, but God will deliver us from it. How? By sending his son, Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus came and lived a completely sinless life, and therefore he didn't owe anything. He had no debt to pay, no ransom that was owed, and yet he chose to die. To pay for the debt of our sins. We were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He came to give his life as a ransom for us. As we sang earlier, the penalty was paid in full because the spotless lamb was slain. And friends, because Jesus has paid our ransom, our future is not one of judgment, but of joy. Notice the end of verse 15. He will receive me. God himself will welcome us into his 
home. Death is not the end of our fellowship with God, but the deepening of it. We will know him better than you can imagine now. We will delight in him in ways that you don't even think possible. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too deep to measure, our king has crushed the curse of death and we are his forever. Because of Jesus, we don't need to fear death because death doesn't take our lives. It begins our lives. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, death is only the beginning of the real story. All our lives in this world and all our adventures here are only the cover and title page. After death, we will at last begin chapter one of the great story, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is what Jesus has done. If you're here and you're still terrified of death, knowing that you don't know what will happen or knowing that you know you don't measure up, that you haven't been perfect because newsflash, none of us has, and you don't know what to do about it, here's your answer. Don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in your goodness. Don't trust in your moral record. Don't trust in your accomplishments. Don't trust in your parents. Don't trust in your kids. Don't trust in anything but Jesus and his blood. And if you do that, this certainty of what awaits you can be yours. If not, we've seen what awaits. And this is the great divide that verses 13 to 15 want us to see. Then in verses 16 to 20, we also see the great illusion. Look at verse 16. It says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. So here the psalmist returns to this theme of not needing to fear. Not needing to fear when those around us become rich and seem to have all that they want. And why do we not need to fear? He says, because when it's all over, we'll see that their wealth, that we either feared or envied, we'll see that it was all just an illusion. When they die, they will carry nothing away. All their glory and fame and power, it won't go down after them. It says, while he lives, the rich man considers himself blessed. And we know this, right? Like, this is our culture. People posting photos of their exotic vacations and their luxury cars with them posing next to it with hashtag blessed, right? And it says, others notice his prosperity and they praise him for doing, oh, that guy's done really well for himself. Look at what he can afford to do and to have and wow, look at what he's got going. So it seems to this man and to many others that he has it all. But when it's all over, his soul goes down to Sheol, just like those before him, and he will never again see the light. At that moment, all his grandeur, all his influence, all his wealth will be shown to be just an illusion, just a mirage. 
Everything he's built and struggled to get will just go. So don't be afraid when they pile up their riches. They'll disappear in a moment while you, Christian, have an inheritance that's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. So do not fear. And that brings us to verse 20 and the second chorus of this song. Look there. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now you'll notice this is very similar to verse 12, but with one key difference. And that difference is the whole point. Here the focus in the verse is on the lack of understanding. So no matter how much pomp and how much wealth a man has, if he lacks understanding, he will perish just like the animals. The essential thing he's telling us that makes death not frightening is understanding. Understanding of what? Exactly what this psalm has been telling us. That no one can save themselves. And if we trust in our wealth, it will all be taken from us at death. But for those who trust in God to pay our ransom, he will welcome us home into his eternal riches in his presence. When it's all over, earthly wealth will be seen to be ultimately worthless because the only currency that matters at death is Jesus' precious blood. And if you're trusting in that alone to save you, you can say how rich a treasure we possess. Friends, the point of Psalm 49 is simple, but maybe hard to hear. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. Wealth cannot save you. Only God can ransom us. So how do we apply that? Don't waste your life running after riches and glory. Memento mori. Remember death and prepare for it by trusting the only one who can save and make him your treasure. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge this morning that we don't think often enough about death. At least not in a meaningful way. We confess that we are happy to watch shows and movies that are filled with it. And yet we recoil in awkwardness and just denial when it's brought up in personal conversation. Father, would you help us to be mindful of our mortality? Would you teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom? Would we be ever conscious of our own approaching death, not in a way that makes us downcast and morbid, but in a way that gives us meaning and purpose and direction and hope and an urgency to live for your name's sake while we have breath. Father, we thank you that this psalm reminds us that death is the great leveler of all. And while we deserve to be wiped away 
and shepherded the Sheol along with the wicked. Because of Jesus, our souls have been ransomed from its power. God, would that transform us? Would we delight in the gospel more when we think about death? Too often we, we minimize the goodness of the gospel because we don't want to think about death and therefore we don't think about the fact that Jesus has saved us from it. So would you make us mindful so that daily we can remember the only reason death isn't scary is because he died and rose again and that in him so will we. So God, would you help us to memento mori, to remember death and to live lives worth living because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.